Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 931 with Chef Rachel Miller. I was just not going to go make someone else's food at that point. I just couldn't. I don't know how to do it. I can't follow my own recipes. It's like, I <laughs> let alone somebody else's. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge. Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a team management platform built specifically for restaurants. Looking to make your life easier? Then Seven Shifts is your secret weapon to better understand your restaurant, hit labor targets, and keep your entire team connected. With drag and drop scheduling, in-app communication, task management, tip management, and more, it makes restaurant work a lot easier. In fact, I haven't come across a restaurant tour using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Restaurant Unstoppable listeners get three months absolutely free get started at www.sevenshifts.com slash unstoppable that's the number seven s h i f t s dot com slash unstoppable to get three months free and join over 30,000 restaurants using seven shifts today This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit. It, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. I don't need to tell you that it's harder than ever right now to be a restaurateur. The cost of goods are going up. Labor expenses are going up. People don't want to work in the industry. Anybody who had experience has has gone on to different verticals or different industries. And we are just stuck with a lot of people who are very green and how, how do we increase sales if nobody knows how to sell? Well, you empower them with the right tools. And one tool out there that you need to know about is called S. RV, which stands for Study Restaurant Variety, created by Roger Bodwin from Restaurant Rockstars, a name I'm sure you recognize for his multiple appearances on the show, and his co-founder and co-creator, Zaylin Jacobson, who you'll be working with. This is a tool that will help your team memorize your menu, your uh, your culture, uh, everything, anything you need to train them, your entire training manual is now in an app and accessible anywhere. And really what it is, is an interactive learning tool. And it's a great way to invest in your team and to make them feel valued. There's a lot of data supporting that. This is how the next generation of professionals prefer to learn. So if you need a tool out there to empower your staff, to train your staff, uh, to, to give them the knowledge they need to be sales stars, then check out srvnow.com 
click the link that says request a demo and that will bring you to a page where you fill out your information. The very last field, make sure you let them know that Restaurant Unstoppable sent you their way. They will pay us a commission of $1,500 if you use that link and you you sign up with them. And I just have to say thank you in advance. We're trying to take Restaurant Unstoppable to the next level. And this is one way we can do that by just spreading the word about these tools. And uh, I believe in what they're doing over there. So you're in good hands. Uh, thank you in advance. All right. Do it now. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, chef owner of Nightshade Noodle Bar and Sin City Superette, Chef Rachel Miller. Chef, are you feeling unstoppable today? I am. Awesome. I cannot wait to dive into your story, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us today? My favorite mantra is... Everything I do is to the best of my ability. I love it. I love it. And what what does that echo to you? What does that mean to you? What is, why do you tell this to yourself? I tell this to myself as a person who tends to move really fast and has cut corners in the past or not made the best decision um, regarding the quality of my work by trying to just get a lot of it done. I say this to myself to just take a pause and make sure I'm doing it the right way. Mm, it's not about the qual- quantity. It's about the quality. And exactly. That is one of the biggest lessons I've learned um, doing this podcast is the importance of not trying to rush through relationships and feed the funnel, but it's about the quality of the relationship. For me, it's relationships. It's people I'm trying to make an example of. And for you, I mean, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but I, I'm, for you, it's about the quality of that, the product that you're putting out. And if you're just rushing it out for volume's sake, then long-term volume is not going to be there, right? Exactly. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. it doesn't matter. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I love it. Great way to get this thing started. And a special thanks to Chef Brendan VC for introducing you. That's that's how I discovered you. Um, And he is a great dude. And if you came up through his tutelage, which I just discovered, you worked for him uh, for... He was one of the first people you worked for, right? Yes. So maybe that's a great place to kind of start the conversation. Where does it make sense to start sharing your story? I think it makes sense to start right there with Chef Brendan VC. In Norfolk, Virginia. I can't remember what years exactly, but this was definitely more than a decade ago. Maybe. Well, you worked in Boston for 12 years, right? Something like that. Yeah. And I know you came up with nothing but a bike and a. Yeah. On a Chinatown bus. (laughs) 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 That was when I was still working for Chef Brendan. Um, I I just hopped on a bus with a friend. Her name was Destiny. Uh, Go figure. And we, (laughs) uh, we were just at random looking for jobs and apartments in Boston just for just for kicks like it was she literally walked up to me one day and was like you want to get out of here maybe we can go to Boston I have a friend there and I was like okay cool that was that was pretty much it (laughs) sounds like a plan to be young uh, again right (laughs) yeah yeah um I can't imagine having that kind of energy at this point but uh but yeah we just got on the Chinatown bus in Norfolk Virginia so did you when you came to Boston did you stay in Boston for a while or did you go back to Virginia and start working again I stayed here for about a year and a half, and then uh, I met I made some other friends that were like, "Hey, let's move to Texas," and then I did that, <laughs> and then um, and then I slowly like just moved back up, like ho- state hopping, making money just to get back up here. Was this in your early twenties? Yes. And when were you first starting to work in restaurants and thinking to yourself, "This is what I'm gonna do. This is my purpose." I dropped out of high school. Uh, I think I was around 15 or 16 when I started working as a dishwasher. And that's when I knew 
I think it was like my first, my first few shifts. I was like, wow, I love this adrenaline rush. I love the heat and the pressure. Everybody's yelling. This is great. <laughs> I really loved it. So at what point, like, um, did, like, was there a person or did, take us to this restaurant? What was it about this restaurant that sucked you in? I don't think it was about the restaurant in particular. It was just about the culture of it. It was about, you know, working hard and visibly seeing the results as a young dishwasher uh, with a lot of energy and adrenaline junkie. It was really impactful for me to just see a mountain of dishes and jump in there and bang it out as fast as possible and then see them all clean and on shelves. And, and that feeling is just something that I, I still feel on a daily basis that, that just clicked in my head as something I want to do. I was having this conversation with somebody recently in the, what you're reminding me of is the, the mentality of just like instant gratification. Like, yeah. I love doing dishes because like you see a pile and then an hour later that pile has gone and you, you achieved something and it's, it's not a big deal, but it is a big deal at the same yeah, it's time. It's a big deal. So what, what, what is it like? What is it, What's going on for you in that moment? Is it the achievement of the seeing progress? Yeah. Or, yeah. The, the seeing progress. I think seeing movement, seeing productivity and being a part of it. Yeah. So you were working in Virginia in restaurants before you moved to Boston. Yeah. I was working in, I, I, it's fuzzy, but I, I want to say maybe three years or so. Um, I was working at a, a place called Kali Cantina in downtown Norfolk, and that that was like my first dishwashing job. Uh, and I started cooking there, and the chef there was like, "Wow, you should uh, maybe take this more seriously." And I'm going to introduce you to this guy, Chef Brendan Vizi. He's opening a place down the street. Nice. Oh man, it's it sounds so easy back then to. Find people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we just went to back doors and got jobs. It was great. <laughs> so you come across the path of Brendan Vizi. Um, did he make an impression on you? Would you call him one of your early mentors? Oh, definitely, a hundred percent. He made an impression on me right away. He was. Um, he had this. It's hard to describe. Still, he he wasn't. I don't want to say intimidating but he certainly had a presence and it wasn't uh, it was inviting and strong. Like he just seemed like someone that I wanted to be like when I grow up, he, he was, he had just great posture. He knew exactly what he was saying. Um, You know, he just had a confidence about him that wasn't, uh, he was just inviting to be around. He wasn't, he wasn't like a, a dick. Yeah, he definitely <laughs> sends off good vibes for sure. Yeah. And one of the things we like to focus on on the show is not so much like what he taught you about food, but what did he teach you about running a kitchen, about being a leader? What really stands out to you? Um, he, ah, oh, that's like, that's such a huge question. So many things. That was such a pivotal point for me. That was when I realized that I really, really, really wanted to be fully serious and dedicate my life to this. Um, but he, I, you know, I think I saw him get upset a few times. This, this, he, he had a way of like, uh, he could manage his emotions. He could show them, but not make anybody feel scared about it. And that is, as I've gotten older, that's certainly a, a, a big lesson is, is how to like convey that you're a human with emotions without terrifying everyone around you. Um, and I remember him 
you know, I remember seeing emotion come across in him and that just made me want to be there even more. What, like, even if he was When you pissed. saw this emotion, like, give me an example, paint the picture of the type of emotion you're seeing. Hmm. Uh, maybe, uh, some of my mise en place was incorrect. Like mm. it didn't taste quite right or it didn't look quite right. And he would come over and like, let me know. I could tell in his eyes that he was stressed out, but in his tone, he wasn't really conveying that. And it just made me feel a lot more respect knowing that I clearly had pissed him off. And he was like, I'm going to teach you how to do this properly. Yeah. Um, and and that just meant a lot to me. I still, I still think about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's that low road of communication. It's what we communicate without our words. Like he, you could tell he cared, right? Mm-hmm. But he, and he was maybe he was upset, but he knew that that letting you really like letting that emotional lead and not and not letting the message lead. You know, the message is this is the right way. Yeah. Um, what's going through your mind as I'm saying this? Well, I'm just agreeing. Yeah. That, that was just that was just the way. That it was, I haven't, I haven't really thought about it in a yeah. long time. Yeah. But so how long were you with Chef VC? I don't quite remember. Um, I was a wild animal when I was a kid. It was maybe, maybe a year and a half. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't that long, but it was, it was long in terms of teenager years. Yeah. You know, like that was, that was a long time. Isn't that for, weird? Like relativity, like, you know, like a summer vacation when you're in your teens felt like forever. Like eternity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're like, where the hell did summer go? Yeah. Oh, it's crazy. So you come up to Boston. How long are you in Boston? Uh, well, I moved to, I was in Boston for a year and a half or so before I left again. So when you came up, I think I read that you were focused on learning butchery. Is this not yet? Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, Brendan actually snapped me out of being a vegan, uh, which I'm so (laughs) grateful for. Yes. Thank you. Chef. Uh, yes. Thank you so much. Um, I don't remember what exactly he said, but it was to the effect of you can't work here if you don't know what this food tastes like. And I was like, I will work here and I will know what this food tastes like. So, so what was it about meat that like, how do you go from being a vegan to becoming a butcher? Four yeah, later? Uh, it was. I don't I, you know, I think I was largely a vegan just to piss off my parents. That was my next question. Why were you a <laughs> vegan? Yeah, <laughs> you, know, I, I, you know, I'm I'm still a full believer in animal welfare and you know all the bigger politics around climate change and global warming and this and that with animal production but but i mostly just like wanted to really piss off my parents <laughs> i love the and honesty <laughs> it uh, worked. This is to be young again right so but i think it's important to talk about this because i think a lot of people who are vegan do it for those reasons like the the global warming or animal welfare and i think that is important to recognize that there's a lot broken with our food system of course but there's also a lot of farmers who are doing it right exactly <laughs> that need your help that need right. your support so if you love meat and you're not eating it because you're afraid of the you know environment then go spend twice as much at the local farm exactly that was <laughs> that was brendan's uh that was brendan's vibe like yeah. he, and that was that was the biggest challenge with working at that restaurant was that the the community wasn't ready for that yet they weren't ready to spend more money on better mm. stuff yet yeah you know but but i was learning about it and i was taking it to heart and and i I changed my tune real quick. Yeah. So you, did you fall in love with me? Like, or oh, yeah. like, what was it about me in that, that part of culinary that really spoke to you after being a vegan? <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, I think the concept of making sure that none of it went to waste was the, the, the most important thing to me mm. in my heart. Um, I definitely enjoyed eating meat 
uh, and I realized how much better I felt and how much clearer my head was. And, you know, there was just things, you know, for me personally, physically that it, that it definitely improved upon. Um, but politically speaking and holistically speaking, what made me really fall in love with being in meat and becoming a butcher, um, was the idea of exactly what you just said. There are farmers out there that are doing this right. And people that do want to contribute this really great product. And, and like, how do we as cooks and as chefs, um, really take that to the fullest extent. Mm. And then, you know, I got, I got obsessed with charcuterie Mm. and, um, and that became a big part of my, of my, you know, drive early yeah. on. And I think, and this may, maybe we'll come back to this uh, later in the conversation, but I think that's one of the big things that we can do as restaurateurs is, is educate. And I think that we've, we've lost sight of a, what a restaurateur. I mean, I, I reference this all the time, but like 200, 300 years ago, if you were a restaurant owner, you were the mayor, you ran that city, you were an influencer, you were mm-hmm. teaching people, you were educating people. Uh, and I think we need to get back to that. Yeah. Yeah. I think we need to get back to that and educating people like where your food comes from and how your dollar can make an impact. Right. Um, so you, you decide to come up to Boston. Um, do you have a strategy? Are you just working anywhere? Or you, do, do you, you get introduced to anyone? Yes. Yeah, so I, uh, through word of mouth, I found this little butcher shop called Leonetti's in the South end. And I, um, the, you know, when I was, living in Virginia still. And I met my friend destiny. We got on our bicycles and got on the Chinatown bus. That was where that was the place that I had emailed and I wanted to come apply for a job in person. And, and I did that. And so I just like beelined off of, off of the train, went and changed my clothes at her friend's house and then went right to this job interview and, um, was basically told that like, they can't pay me. I don't have any skills. I'm a liability. I'm going to be a huge pain in the ass. All the things that I feel about a lot of people around me on a daily basis now. <laughs> and, um, and I was like, you know what? I'll, I'll just, can, can I just, uh, just be here? Like, you don't have to pay me at all. Mm. And, and it's funny how we were so willing 15 years ago, 10 years ago to just take a job for, for the sake of being there. Right. Yeah. It's not that way anymore. Everybody wants like, unrealistic things. Um, so I, you know, I think we settled on like, I think they paid me like $10 an hour or something. I think they weren't, I, I don't really quite remember, but I know that I, I like busted my ass. I worked so hard. I was like just mopping floors, sharpening knives, whatever I could. Um, I definitely had more experience with food and at that butcher shop, there was a separate deli case basically like where if the chicken had reached a point, uh, we would cook it off and turn it into chicken salad and that was sold over there. And that, that I think is where I was largely more valuable. And then, and then slowly but surely they got me behind a knife and I was doing things like breaking down, um, primals for sausage meat like things that i could screw up cutting to learn just because we knew it was going to go in a grinder um and and that was i think i i think i just eventually like worked up from there yeah but i think there's something to be said about working from the bottom up you know and i think even like i think of like thomas keller the french laundry no matter who you are you could come from the most prestigious restaurant in the world but if you go to the french laundry you're going to start at the bottom Mm -hmm. Why, why do you why is it so important to do that so you understand the whole system yeah so you you can embrace the culture that you're coming into in a more valuable way. Mm. And I don't know. I think I could answer that question forever. There's right. so many. Yeah. There's so many reasons why you so should. 
putting yourself back into that earlier version of who you were when you mm-hmm. reached out and they said you're going to start from the bottom, you're a liability. What was going through your head? Were you were you taken back? Were you insulted? No. Okay. I knew very well I was a liability. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the oldest sibling. I've had a, like a lot of younger people around me and people I've had to be responsible for. I was very familiar with that feeling of like, I can't trust you to like put the paper towels away. Like I, I could definitely understand that in the context of what I was coming to them for very clearly. It didn't, it didn't cross my mind as, as rude or anything. Yeah. So, I mean, this is where you're primarily learning about the trade. Um, but are you starting to learn about business at this point? Are you interested in the business of restaurants at this point? Yes, for sure. What is interest? Like what, like where is your interest? Like explain to me like your mindset back then of where you were and where you wanted to be and why you're interested in the business of restaurants. I think going back to what we were talking about with dishwashing, seeing the instant gratification piece and, and being a part of the productivity and it happening so fast and understanding as a restaurant employee that that's how the business makes money and that's how you get paid. Um, and, and just in my head, it was just always so simple and it still is like if, if, if I can't produce X amount or if I need all this attention, and it's taken time from other things. If the if if the team isn't able to produce, you know, what it needs to, you know, what the chef wants to produce and at the volume that the chef wants to, then I won't have a job for very long. Mm. And like this is how you know, like I, I had to like kinda think about it in terms of my own worth to a company or worth to a chef or worth in a team about what I you know, what my value was. And that's how I started thinking about it in a business sense. And that was sort of how I, I got jobs after that was was talking about my productivity in terms of that. Being like, you know, for the price of $12 an hour, here's what I can yeah. <laughs> achieve. That's and, funny. Um, you know, it, that that's I think where where that started. I just was hustling. so. What point did you start to value yourself beyond twelve dollars an hour? When did oh, that start to happen? I, I mean, like in Boston, money that's like that was never really much. Yeah, coming from the south in the beginning, coming from the south, that was still a lot of money. It yeah. was a totally different thing. Like mm-hmm. I had two hundred dollar rent in Virginia. That's wild. And then I had <laughs> you know I four or five that. times that when right. I moved here. So I didn't really know how to ask for what I needed, and and. Um, so, you know, after I, you know, took this, this $10 an hour position or whatever it was, I, you know, within a month I had a second job and, <laughs> and started reevaluating how, how I was going to handle myself moving forward. And this was just your first wave through Boston, right? Cause you mm-hmm. left and came back. So do me a favor real quick without getting into detail, kind of just what were the stops along the way? Like what were the jobs you had? This was Linetti's, right? That you're talking Leonetti's, about? Leonetti's. Yeah, thank you. End. Uh, like where did you go from here, but don't get into the details and then sure. we'll drill down afterwards. I got a sous chef gig at a local like bar and restaurant, um, like three blocks from my apartment. Okay. That, that was at night. I was at Lena's during the day and I went to work at this place at night. Um, and then I saved up a little bit of money, quit both, moved to Texas. Okay. Uh, with a few friends. Hated Texas. Where in Texas were you? Um, outside of Austin in a little town called Elgin. Okay. Uh, which is where the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was filmed, oh. and it felt like it. <laughs> it was hard. So, for me. <laughs> were you working in restaurants in Texas too? I went to I went to Texas to 
I, I went to this place in particular because I wanted to work at this specific sausage factory that I'm drawing the name on right now. Um, and they would not entertain the thought of me working there. I was a woman, Ooh. a young woman and with tattoos, dare I say gay. Like it was, you know, there's enough going what on there already. What year is this? This must have been 2010. I mean, were you, you're, I don't really, it's surprising. I mean, I mean Texas pretty far right state but if you're in i lived in austin for a couple of years austin is yeah, pretty liberal step right outside of it, <laughs> yeah you don't game. have to go far outside so you no. weren't that far no we were like half an hour yeah you know we were told that we were moving we did this over craigslist and it was half an hour outside but it was half an hour outside of austin if yeah. you're gunning like 95 miles an hour yeah to austin so it was way way out there yeah um like nothing but cows and beetles and i got you west or east and stuff hmm I can't remember. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So it doesn't matter. I'm just curious. I know the area. So, um, okay. So you're, you, you moved to Texas. The culture is different. You don't feel welcome. No, I couldn't get a job. I, I eventually found a, a job, a line cooking job in Austin. It was very short lived. It just, I couldn't fit in anywhere. I was just, you know, everything about the experience was a little much for me and I just didn't connect with it and I mm. wanted to, to get out. So you got out. Yeah. Any so. learning points here any points of evolution for you as a as a restaurant tour chef just that mostly just that the things that you value in one place are certainly not going to be what you value in another necessarily what were the things that you valued that you well i thought i was a valuable employee here like i thought that i thought that you know the things that i paid attention to as an employee like whether it be like making sure we never ran out of paper towels or always had my you know, chives cut on time or whatever. Like it wasn't really, you know, I had such a narrow window of experience at that point. I didn't know that that wasn't going to be what was valued everywhere I went. And, and like at this one job that I happened to find in Texas, that was like definitely not what they were interested in. It was just like full throttle volume. And I've just never really been a volume cook. Yeah. Um, so you come back to the East. Mm hmm. How long were you there? A year and a half, you said? No, I think I was in in that area for maybe five or six months, and then I, I slowly moved up. So my partner and I had a truck, and we just drove. I think we drove to, like, Tennessee, yeah. and then we, we, ran out of, we were out of money. So we lived in a motel for, like, $100 a week, and we worked at, a, like, a shitty ski lodge making chicken fingers. <laughs> in Tennessee? <laughs> yeah, Gatlinburg, <laughs> Tennessee. And then uh, I think we got jobs at, like, a Dollywood snack shack or something like we were just like trying so hard to make any money possible. Um, and then, you know, we'd save up like $60 and put it in the gas tank and drove to Asheville. And <laughs> then we did the same thing in Asheville. We made, we made enough money in Asheville. We decided to stay there until we made enough gas money to make it back up to Boston. And I had a job lined up. So I was able to just jump right back. This in. is what it sounds like when I'm on the road, when I first <laughs> took the podcast and there was like, how much money's in the bank? How far can I go? Um, but yeah. I, I highly <laughs> encourage anybody who's listening to this, who's young or any point in your life, really, there's nothing limiting you, but it tends to be easier when you're younger, when you have fewer liabilities. Do exactly this. Get out there. Try things. You don't know until you know. Yeah. You've got to get that perspective. Get out of the comfort zone. You're not going to get very far if you're always comfortable. Yeah, exactly. So you, you eventually find your way back to Boston. What was it about Boston mm-hmm. that keeps bringing you back? I, um, My partner at the time, her family was from here, so that, that was easy. Um, and I was working for Jason Bond in that year, you know, before I moved to Texas, I'd met Jason Bond. I worked for him for a period of time. Um, 
you know, after Leonetti's and the, and the, you know, that, that short lived, I'm worth $10 an hour thing that, uh, that's when I met Jason Bond. So Jason Bond, uh, (laughs) he was the owner uh, of, uh, I'm probably going to say this wrong, Bondier. Bondier. Yes. Okay. So, um, this close today, but they had a good 10 year run, right? Uh, yeah. I, I, plus year, I want to say something like that. Yeah. Um, So where were they in their lifespan when you joined? Like how far in were they? I, when I, at this point in time, Jason Bond was a chef at Beacon Hill Bistro and, and I became a line cook there. Okay. Um, and then, and this was pre-Texas jumping around a little bit. Okay. So then Jason decides to open Bondier and I was like, whatever, man, I'm going to Texas. Yeah. So come back, you know, we're, we're on the way back up. He's like, Hey, I really need you to come do this job. Like get this stupid shit out of your system and like get back to work. And I was like, okay, fine. And then I did. And then at that point, I'd come back to Boston and I went right to work at Bondier. So what was it about um, you, do you think, at this point that he saw in you, that he wanted you back? Because he, he saw your value. Texas maybe didn't see your value, but he saw your value. What did he see in you, do you think? He had sunk a year into teaching me how to do things that he wanted. His way, right? His way. Yeah. And, and I knew that right off the bat. I think about that all the time. Um, and, and also, I think I was a really hard worker. Like, I felt terrible all the time i didn't know how to do things right the other cooks were speaking in terms i didn't know they were not from like you know they weren't like a street rat from norfolk virginia like me so they you know they had culinary school backgrounds and they knew they had fancy knives and things i didn't have um and i just felt terrible a lot and and i think that he he like saw that i wasn't giving up i wasn't quitting yeah which is rare yeah it is rare uh, well, maybe not back then. Back then, jobs were a lot more competitive. Mm-hmm. And I think that was why I stayed, because I knew I wasn't going to get a better job or another job if I just bounced on this one. Um, but I also was doing it for myself. And I think ultimately he saw that. Like, he, you know, he would, like, give me, he would introduce me to, like, a new kind of peppercorn. And then I would go home and read all about it and, like, come back and ask questions. And I think that that, you know, I, at the time, I thought that I was incredibly annoying, um, but I think in retrospect, that was probably pretty valuable to him. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, in, in regards to business and, and to how he ran his businesses, what did you learn from him? What stuck with you today with what you do in your business? I think as cliche as it sounds, just the, the way, the minimal waste, the way that he utilized, you know, trimmings and byproduct was, was different than the way Brendan did and the way other chefs I worked for did. And it was, it was cool to, you know, see how different people utilize different things and the types of restaurants that they had. And then the price points of restaurants that they had, this was certainly a higher price point and it was in a, you know, it was a little fancier. And I think that, you know, seeing, you know, the, you know, pork trimmings from, you know, cleaning up a, like a, I don't know, rack of ribs or something, go into a sausage that we would sell for $24 or something like that, that made an impact on me was Mm. seeing like how, if I just keep track of this amount of byproduct, I can turn it into this revenue center. Did it teach you how to keep track of it? Yeah. How, like, how do you keep track of byproduct? Well, I, I would just document it. I had, you know, I had like little sheets and I had tons of notebooks and stuff that I would just like, you know, like, oh, well, I put this piece of pork on the scale and it was 22.7 pounds. And then I broke it down into the portions that I needed and had 4.8 pounds left over. 
And then I would convert it to grams and cryovac it and put it in the freezer. And so, I would just write it down so I always knew I had it. So when you write this down, right, you're, you have a little notebook and you're tracking the, the volume, the weight. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you do with that information thereafter? Where, like, when do you come back to that? When we've accumulated enough to make a dish out of okay. to run for a period of time. Got it. So you would just, you would just basically stock your waste until the, that waste got to the point where it was no longer waste because you had enough volume to do something else with it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, anything that we need to learn, like more details about how to manage that, how to keep that organized, or is it just having a, a, a tally of ingredients with volume next to it? I suppose that's just the best way that I yeah. thought it. I, um, I know maybe it seems how I operate this place. Yeah. Too. Um, but it's like the little details I like to get and like how to do little things better. But the, I mean, the margins in this industry are so small. It's not just about the money that you have coming in. It's about what are your expenses, you know, and how are mm-hmm. you getting, how are you squeezing the most juice out of that lemon? You know, yeah. like, like how can you get the most out of your product? And that's the lesson I'm hearing. Right. And one of the things that Jason uh, Chef Jason instilled in me was um, exactly that. Like what we're selling is not just covering the cost of the dish or the cost of the food, but it needs to like pay the electricity bill and it needs to be a value in all these other ways. And the, he taught me a few formulas and, and taught me how to like price specials and, and, you know, not before long I was making, we had a little specials menu and, and I generally had at least one dish on it. So what did he teach you about how to price specials? Why do you price specials differently? Um, price them a little lower than the rest of the menu. If it, if it's like clearly a byproduct, I think. Okay. Um, so if it's a matter of trying to move product. Yeah. You want to price it low enough that it will move. Okay. So it's, um, you either throw it out or you get less of a margin on it, but something's better than nothing. Exactly. Yeah. And if it's a byproduct and you've already made what you need to off of the original product, then this totally. should just be supplemental. Yeah. All bonus anyway. So I think that, you know, now when I think back, I think that he kind of like had, had me rigged as like a separate little like baby revenue center on his line, which I, we should think about everybody as. Wait, but he had you he, rigged as a baby revenue center? Yeah. Like <laughs> okay. he was like, oh, we've got like this and that and the other thing. What are we going to make with it? And I was like, I guess we'll just make stewed lentils with sausage, you know, whatever. And we could charge $22 for it. And he'd give us feedback or like how to make it feel like $22 and and that, you know, I was able to put these dishes together on my own before not, you know, before long and just present it to him. And then, you know, two years later I was doing that with the entire menu at Bondier. That's amazing. Uh, I can't help like listening to you talk and like and all the lessons I've learned about menu engineering and costing. And it's, it's down to the gram. Like what does it cost us per like down to the paper you're wrapping the sandwich in like mm-hmm. every element that goes over the counter that goes out that door is accounted for. Um, how do you just come up with $22? You know, like when you're making a special, like how do you take that level of attention and detail with the, to the gram cost well, to think, the byproduct? I think it's for me, and not saying this has always been successful, but it's it's not just that. It's it's like how does this fit into the menu? How is this going to fit with the meal? What is the guest perspective going to be? What is the guest willing to pay in this environment if they were getting an extra dish, um, something that they, you know, like they've already got their meal figured out. We have the same menu every day. These people come here all the time. If they're going to get an extra dish or something new, how are we going to make it 
just as good as everything that they already get, just as impactful, just as filling, X, Y, Z. And then how do we make it more enticing? Again, pricing like slightly lower, but not undermining the value of the work. Um, and then making sure that everything that you just listed fits into that. The, the, the storage container, the, you know, three ounces of olive yeah. oil, the, you know, so I would just, and to this day, I think that's been successful at nightshade, which is a lot different format than any restaurant, uh, that I worked for at that period in time. But, um, making sure that it actually works where you are and in the context of the restaurant and then working backwards and making sure that all the ingredients and all the elements that need to fit into it appropriately do. Yeah. Cause if that doesn't work, then you're just, you're not on the right track. Yeah. Yeah. So, any other key lessons Jason Bond taught you things worth diving into? Hmm. Uh, I think just how to, I think one of the biggest things I learned working for him was compartmentalizing feelings, you know, still young. How do you teach somebody? Like how how do they teach you this? Oh, just making me do it. Like, I, I don't know. He was, he's, you know, in, in an endearing way, I say he was probably the one of the more like demanding employers I've had. Um, I don't have anything bad to say about that. It just, you know, we all need that. That was, it was like, it was a tough job. That was a hard era. Was this a hard time for you? You said shitty, you said shitty feelings or feelings. Yeah, I, I felt like shitty. didn't have a lot of confidence. I didn't have a lot of self-confidence. I, I worked, I don't know. 80 hours a week. How did that manifest in work? How did it get to the point where he had to say something to you? I don't know. I I think I have no idea. I I didn't know how to manage myself yet. I I think I just channeled like a lot of my, like, you know, negative feelings about myself and like where I fit in socially here. Uh, I just was like channeling that right into work. Just making myself valuable. Do you remember the point where he said something to you? Did like you said he, he helped you did. compartmentalize feelings? <laughs> oh, I mean, it wasn't like a conversation. He's not a talkative oh, okay. guy. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. He's a pretty quiet guy. So it was learning through observation that you saw that he could compartmentalize his feelings. Oh yeah, definitely. And then is it was it just like monkey see monkey? Do you like he's, right. you're seeing him control his feelings? You're not letting he clearly is not letting his emotion dictate his decisions. Sure, I mean he would let it out and it would yeah. be terrifying, but it was like that, that was you know a striking difference you know between you know, Brendan, like I was talking about earlier and chef Jason now was, you know, the way that, and I think that was just me coming of age and like having more responsibility and blah, blah, blah. And like how, you know, whatever big deal stuff. But, um, I think that ultimately just realizing in a real way that like, Oh, I'm on my own. I'm in a different state. I'm far away. This guy is giving me the benefit of the doubt and letting me work here. And he's pissed. And, and I still have to do my job. Yeah. And 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 I'm gonna do it and it's gonna be fine. And 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 how to talk myself into continuing to do my job, surpassing this, you know, I don't wanna say like shoving my feelings away, but there's there's time and a place for it and it's not really on the line. And and that was just how I've learned. You know, I'm not saying that's like the most healthy thing. But, but that's, we have that's just I think like, it's important that we can do that. And I think people need to know that like if you feel emotional if you have emotion one of the cool things about being human is we're one of the few species that can recognize our emotion we're Mm self-aware 
Not every species can do that. Most, I think we might, maybe with the exception of like dolphins and a couple whales. Yeah. Like we (laughs) know when we're emotional, we can literally make the the decision in that moment to ignore our emotions and to to go into our more rational mind. And just knowing that is so empowering, I think. Exactly. I think, uh, yeah, I think that's a really good way to, to kind of finalize that statement was that was like the, the push came to shove and I had to learn in a real way really fast that if I don't learn how to manage this and if I don't learn how to keep myself in check and, and like turn, like reframe this energy and turn it into something positive, turn it into fuel to put out the best possible product, then, then like, me personally, I don't. I didn't think I was going to get that far if I didn't learn how to control my my emotions better. Got it. Um, so, any other major stops between Chef? I know you you were with um, Kenna Oranger for a while. Mm-hmm. How long were you there? Were, were there any other stops two and a half between? Years. How, you said ten um, and a half years. Two and a half. Years. Two and a half years. Um, I yeah. I mean, I had a few jobs in between. Uh, I left when. Bondier Concord opened. I went to open that location. I was ready to part ways kind of shortly after. I think I was there for four months or so, and it just like was not for me. Um, Bondier Concord. Yeah. What was different about Bondier OG and the second location that was not for you? Well, the OG was in Cambridge, and the clientele was just a lot different. Yeah. And Concord, people were asking us to make pizza and chicken tenders for their kids. Like it, it was just not at all. Yeah. You know what we were doing and I was too young to kind of, I don't know, deal with that appropriately. And I was like, you know what? Fuck this. I got so much time ahead of me. I'm not going to stop here and make chicken tenders. Like, mm. and not that Jason was going to do that anyway, but like we just had to go. Like yeah. I just had to get, it was time to go somewhere else and, and like find out what else I can do. I mean, but I think it's important early in your career. I mean, at this point I'm assuming we're in the early 2010s, like 2014, 13, 15, around that period, uh, or maybe a little sooner. This was earlier than that. Earlier than that. It's like 2000. Yeah. So, um, early in your career, I think it's important to get that exposure, to get those impressions from different parts of the, the industry. Yeah. And you don't want to stay in one spot too long, in my opinion, early in your Mm-mm. career. Uh, so w- where did you want to go? W- w- where were you being pulled next? At that point, I just needed a job where I could tune out a little bit and not be so emotionally invested. So I just took a job like operating like a commissary. I don't really remember what it was, to be honest with you. It was so unmemorable, but yeah. <laughs> I was there for, it was a paycheck. for a few months. Yeah, it was a paycheck. I was there for a few months while I was figuring out how to get my shit together to get a better job. And and then um, Cleo was looking for a sous chef. What did you learn about figuring spot. your shit out to get a better job? Well, I needed to take a break. I needed to, to not be so like emotionally affected by, by like my... I don't know, previous less mature self in a different situation. <laughs> like I needed to like kind of have a breakup a distance. I was going through a big breakup. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> you know, I worked for Jason in total chef Jason in total for like six years, I think. And, and you know, like you said, it's, you know, when you're young and coming up, it's like not that beneficial to work somewhere for so long. Mm. Like your head gets all wrapped up and like, it's not the same, you know, not want to say your, but like my head got all wrapped up. It wasn't, the the healthiest decision bondier became way too much a part of my personality i needed to have my own personality Mm. and my own work ethic and things that were not associated in order to progress in a 
more productive way. Got it. So you go to this commissary, you, you take your time, you, you create mm-hmm. your distance, you're just going to get your paycheck. What was, what, what did you discover about yourself? Where, where, what was your next move? I discovered that I really am not like built for jobs that don't have emotional or sorry, not, I'm not built for jobs that don't have creative, uh, freedom okay autonomy and that creativity yeah yeah um what i mean my ego was too big mm, like I, I was just you and everybody you know? in this industry i feel like sometimes <laughs> we have a lot of big egos in this industry so how did you learn how to detach yourself from that ego i don't think i did i just got a better job with it <laughs> to be honest like i don't want to make anybody else's food i don't want to do i don't want to make anybody else's recipes i've you know i found value And I still do find value in that. Um, But I know as far as like what I can produce on a workspace to make things, to make myself valuable and to create money for people around me, like that wasn't, that just wasn't my role. Like I just couldn't do it. So what else happens before 2017? Because 2017, from what I can gather, is when you say I'm on my own. So Clio closed in 2015. Um I was the last CDC there. I got hired in as a sous chef, got promoted to CDC, worked out the the you know rest of the restaurant's existence, and then, um, and then I I like went to Costa Rica for a week and by myself, and just went surfing and just zoned out and didn't know what to do because like my favorite job of all time just ended, and. I just was emailing around and I found another job running a small restaurant, you know, kitchen for somebody. And that also was short lived because it was just too small for, for it was this size, but it was too small for like me and another chef owner. Like my head was too big and your head was big meaning ego again. Yeah, I think so. And also I just really didn't, I just wanted my own thing so bad Mm. that I just didn't, I was so used to having, when I was the last CDC at Clio and as a sous chef there, there were two or three menu items that we were not to touch. The rest of the menu was fair game. I had my own whole menu for the most part for multiple years at this point from, from having like a specials menu at Beacon Hill Bistro to most all of the menu at Bondir for, for a long period of time for, for someone like me in that age and that experience level. And then was at Clio and had a 22 item menu that was all my stuff. So I, and, and I didn't have any, I was just not going to go make someone else's food at that point. I just Mm -hmm. couldn't, I, I don't know how to do it. I can't follow my own recipes, like (laughs) let alone somebody else's. So, I mean, we can't hover over. I know, um, Jamie Bissonnette and Ken Orange. I don't know if Jamie was a partner in in Clio though. I think that was, yeah. But I know they're, they're good business people. Yeah, definitely. Um, what did you learn about the game of business from these two? Or I know maybe just from from Ken, where you, did you get the, any impressions from Jamie? Was sure. Around yes. Yeah. Uh, well, so after Cleo closed, I did like a short like help out stint at Got Copa. It. Got it. Um, while they were in, they were opening Little Donkey, so they they just needed like some hands, and I was available, and I was already familiar with the way that Chef Ken Oranger worked, so that was kind of an easy in mm-hmm. for me socially. Yep. Um, and that was a completely different place. You know, like Cleo was all tweezers and liquid nitrogen and shit, and like this was like slinging a ton of pizzas right now really fast and it it was just such a beast and so high volume do you think that 
that concept, little donkey with little donkey or Copa, we're talking about Copa. Now. We're Copa talking about, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you think that that concept was in response to knowing how hard it is to do a, a tweezer restaurant and be profitable? I like to think so. I've never actually asked that question, but now that I'm in this position and I just opened a little grocery store yeah. that sells sandwiches, I fully yeah, you <laughs> like see that. I need that. You see that pattern. I was yeah. curious about your concepts and you mentioned earlier that the, that nightshade is different from any other restaurant that you worked in. And I was curious if that was one of the things that's different about what you're doing here is, are you more geared towards what works in today's market versus tweezers? Like, well, which, it's both. Yeah. Um, nightshade is all blind tasting menus and we're very lucky and fortunate to fill this place up every night that we're open. People don't even know what they're getting. They can request maybe two things. Um, and other than that, the rest of, you know, we offer like seven, nine, 12 and 14 course tasting menus. And, and if people want more, I'll do more, but they can't request more than two things here. And that, you know, is part of that you know, in a business sense, like I have to keep inflation is nuts. Nothing is built for small restaurants to survive period. Like I can't meet a meat minimum. I have to go, I have to like pay cash or, or go like through a produce vendor and pay more. Um, which is why we're a seafood restaurant, but just like, you know, largely a seafood restaurant, but you get the ocean right there. Yeah. It's right there. I got fisherman buddies. Um, so in a business sense, this place is, is much different than anywhere I've worked in that I've just, I've had to use what is luckily my good reputation as a chef to be like, you're not, you don't get to know what you're getting, but like, you can look at this list of things that might be on your menu and that's it. And, and then I can utilize every bit of everything I have to make a, the best food costs that I possibly can. Um, and that's, you know, by people not being able to choose, like if, you know, I know that every night everyone is going to get, you know, at least six of the same dishes. So I've, you know, prepared that many. And if I've got two of this or like if the fishermen are like, hey, I pulled up the lobster thing and there was six whelks, you want them? I'm like, yes, you know, yeah. I can use the six whelks and, you know, I can. It's chaos. It's a lot more flexibility. But it's fun oh, chaos. I love it's chaos. Me too. And it's my favorite. I mean, a lot of people are like very anti-chaos when it comes to business. Like it's all about systems, processes, procedures. But I am a strong advocate for balance. I think we thrive yeah. on chaos. I, people, Certain people thrive on chaos. Um, but in chaos, you get to take advantage of those those opportunities that present themselves. If you're all about system and process, when that curveball comes your way, that's not, not always there. You can't leverage it. You can't get the most out of it because you're too caught up in your systems to, exactly. to be able to, to pivot in a moment notice to take, to increase your margin. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's power there. Yeah. And the system here is that I've got this, you know, I always have this huge pantry worth of sauces. We have like all of our nightshade mother sauces that turn into 900 other things. And there's, you know, this roster of dishes that I've had, I've been accumulating forever, like, you know, 700 dishes to choose from. I've got these whelks and I've got this sauce and that sauce. And I know I've done this before and I know it's good and I know it's cost effective. So that's what's happening. And, and, and I've been fortunate enough to accumulate all of that information by having the jobs and the freedom that I had in the past and being able to apply it now. Yeah. So the system is there so that I can have chaos. Yeah. I love that. So I want to dive more into the evolution of your own businesses and how you started Mm -hmm. your own businesses. But before we go there, I started asking like, I know these Jamie and Ken Oranger are great business people. Any business lessons like that, that I don't know if I got one. 
Oh yeah, sorry. I You're think um, I think just that, and this goes without. You know, most of what the lessons that I learned from them were about behavior and how to manage people, how to manage peers. Because mm. I've always kind of been in an environment with people my age and having to kind of distance myself from them socially in order to be a manager. Uh, that was the that was a lot of the advice that I got from them was how to, or you know, mostly Ken. I, I think I, I didn't have much interaction with Jamie. Um, although what we did talk about was hugely impactful, but again, for the most part, it was just about how to be a better manager, how, like what to focus on, when to, when to subject myself to any, you know, uncomfortable situations for growth. Was there an uncomfortable situation without getting into detail? Oh, sure. All the time. Like that was a very competitive, Cleo was a very competitive work environment. Very competitive. If I, you know, I was like scared and ashamed to sharpen my knives in front of the other cooks because they were better at that than me. And I never was actually trained by anyone to do it. Mm. And so I had to kind of put myself in a position where I was being taught to do something by someone I was supposed to be you know, in a management position with and how to manage myself in that circumstance as, you know, a 25 year old that's, you know, with a, you know, 26 and 27 year old coworkers yeah. <laughs> and so, like how to, how to learn from them and still operate this, this kitchen. So I mean, is the lesson there that it's okay to not know as much as everybody in the room about every single thing? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that, that's a huge lesson we have. Again, it goes back to ego, right? Like, mm-hmm. Who cares if they know how to do that better than me? This is an opportunity for me to show my vulnerability and to learn something and to strengthen a relationship out of that, you know? Right. And one of the things that Ken taught me was like, you're not supposed to know every single thing. You're hired to do this job, not that job. Yeah. Like you, you know, think about it like, you know, you, you have to just make sure that the job does get done. So if you have to outsource this or you have to have this other cook do this thing, you know, which is what running a kitchen is, it's just like kind of placing skill sets and personalities in a way to make everything cohesive team players. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, It's like building a, I don't know, like hectic. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's, um, but it, you know, having, you know, putting people in, in situations, empowering them to do this for you, and feeling trust in you so that they will do it like under your yeah. rule, so to speak, was mm-hmm. you know, and everyone, you know, we were all there doing anything we could for Ken Oranger's name and for Cleo. So it wasn't about me anyway, but just as, you know, a, a someone who was responsible for making sure things got done, what he taught me was to not have to to not put myself not put so much pressure on myself to know everything already but to coordinate all the factors, all the people that do already know these things to make sure that it gets done. Yeah. It's it, not about me knowing everything. It's about surrounding yourself with people who are better than you. Exactly. That's the goal. And the- that was what, <laughs> you know, that, that was a big, that was the biggest lesson I learned there. And then the hardest, you know, part about that was just that I didn't have much of a name yet. Any cooks coming in, you know, they weren't coming to like, certainly weren't coming to work with or for me. They were coming to work with and for Ken Oranger. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was a, a funny balance and that's still, you know, something that I feel like a lot of female cooks and chefs deal with in specific is like, how do we socially navigate this and get people to 
I didn't mean to open that can of worms and then not have a full sentence behind it, but like it's <laughs> just <laughs> the, uh, how, how do you make it work? You know, like if it's not like we're, we're not like Thomas Keller, who's just like, just surround yourself with people that are better than you. And like, you can yeah. just pay them absorbent amounts of money. And, and like, you have pretty pictures and cookbooks, like not to simplify that, but like, we don't yeah. have anything anywhere near that worlds apart. So you have to make yourself valuable to others. So how do you do that? How do you make yourself valuable? I'm to still others? trying to figure that yeah. shit out, man. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I think, I think it's important to remember that you're, you're still a young person, right? Relatively speaking, you're still a young person. I think, we forget that that it takes a lifetime. Thomas Keller, you know, he, he had a restaurant fail before opening the French Laundry. You know, mm-hmm. like he he started. He was a disaster once too. You yeah. Know? And I think it's just a reminder that like it's constant. Like as Danny Meyer would say, constant gentle pressure. It, it's it's n- yeah, and also like realistic social pressure. Yeah. Like, you know, we there is something. You know, I I think, and every time like. And not to knock anything that you just said, but anytime, you know, those sorts of examples have been brought up, it's like, well, I'm not like a rich white guy. What, yeah. what do you expect me to do? I got like $110,000 to open this. And that was like nothing, like not anything what I needed to, 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 to do this um, in modern day times. And, and thinking about what people can afford in order to get to where they are and the you know, the different ways you have to use your business mind to navigate that. Those are more of like the, you know, what I, now that I'm in this position and I'm managing money and I'm responsible for people's livelihoods and trying to figure out like, well, I could just spend all this money on like fancy photos and start writing a cookbook and start doing things that I, that seem to be the way to, to like stardom, to make sure your restaurants are always busy and that you have this kind of like leg up where people just will respect you and they will take these jobs. But the reality of it is that you, you know, we all still have to, I'm having a hard time pulling this all together. It made sense in my head, but still have to, you know, trudge through so much, unrealistic business stuff as a restaurateur now because like what we you know the money that we make for the effort that we put in now rest, the margins are so slim but that wasn't like that's not like that at per se that wasn't like that at french laundry mm-hmm. years ago that yeah. was never like that for them so trying to compare ourselves as business people to restaurants and mentors and you know people that just really didn't have to go through you know they had a different they were at the, the leading edge of the the movement, right? Yeah, they, I'm sure they, they were had the, their hardships, yeah. but it wasn't what this is. They were first to market with, with what food is more commonly known as today. You know, going back 15 years right. ago, like what was happening at the French Laundry, you didn't see it happening other places. You had to go travel to it because it was a destination. You couldn't. The level of talent necessary to it to pull off what they were doing in that kitchen then is more common, I would say, today with the advent of like the internet and being able to learn and the competition, like the bar is being raised across the industry over the past 10 years. Like I Uh I would say I would make the argument that like the industry is much more competitive, but I think I'm supporting what you're saying is today the market is much more competitive than it was then. So how do you deliver? Like, like how do you recreate that in a, on a different landscape, right? Without the privilege. Yeah, that is, that is the equation every day. It's like, how, how do we, how do we, manage in this time when this is the you know 
the financial situation and it is as a as a restaurant it's very competitive to make it up in the ranks and to be recognized at all um and then with the job market the way it is it's just like nearly impossible like if yeah there's so many restaurants that would be 10 times more successful if they had staff you know and like a lot of us just don't and the and the smaller we are the less likely we are to have that yeah i'm gonna put a marker here the industry is nearly impossible as a reminder to come back to this because i think it'd be a cool way to kind of wrap up today's conversation but what i am curious about is eventually 2017 or 2015 is when Clio closes Mm -hmm. you're doing your own thing for a while when at what point you're like i'm doing my own damn thing Right away. I knew I wasn't going to find, like, you know, I looked for jobs and tasting menu restaurants were largely closed or they were operated by the chef that owns them and they did yeah. not need help like what I could offer and what I was looking for and at the pay rate I was looking for. Okay. Um, and so I decided at that point I was just going to kind of missionary cook, be there for whoever needs a cook and yeah. start my own business. And so I started Nightshade Pop-Up. All right. Well, let's take a break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back to talk about this this is I mean, i've been excited for this but we're finally here let's get into it today's episode is brought to you by seven shifts seven shifts is a team management platform built specifically for restaurants as host of restaurant unstoppable i chat with a lot of restaurateurs one thing a lot of them have in common they use seven shifts in fact Every restaurateur using Seven Shifts that I've come across has great things to say about them. With over 700,000 restaurant pros and counting using it today, they're clearly onto something. So what are you waiting for? Seven Shifts is your secret weapon to better understand your restaurant, hit labor costs, and keep your entire team connected with drag and drop scheduling, in-app communication, task management, labor compliance, tip management, and more. It makes restaurant work a lot easier. And I bet Every member of your team will get value from it. Whether you're a franchise owner or a chief technology officer, a manager working in front of house or back of house, plus it integrates with other restaurant tech systems you already use like your POS, payroll, and more. That is powerful. As a restaurant unstoppable listener, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months free and join over 30,000 restaurants using seven shifts today. We're back, and now we're going to get into how you took off and did your own entrepreneurial thing and how you just, you know, started from where you could. And that's one of the things, I mean, the answer that you said, like, how do we do this? How do we, like, how do you, 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 I think we constantly compare ourselves to others. Mm-hmm. We're guilty of it. Like, the, we, we see what we want and who has what we want. We compare ourselves to that. But, Definitely. Yeah. So, how do you get to that point of where the people who you admire, the people who have what you want, how do you get to that point? And I think what you are doing is the way to do that. So what are you doing? How are you like, what, is, what was your strategy from day one when you broke off on your own? Uh, I wanted to, you know, it, it was certainly one of the hardest decisions because I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know how to operate a business. I had no foundation. Um, but I wanted to start my own little company. I wanted to work on my own terms. I wanted to start Nightshade Pop-Up. 
And then again, missionary cook around where whoever needed it. I started. Um, What's a missionary cook? cook for hire? Like if, yeah, you know, like if, uh, you know, Joe calls out on Saturday night. Get economy cook. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I just, I'd, I would just go work at random stations for random restaurants you know, at a random time. <laughs> I think that there's a market. There's a huge market for that right Definitely. now. And you can charge a lot to be a missionary cook. Be- I did. Yeah. yeah Cuz people even were back desperate. Then, even pre-pandemic, I was But not everybody can do it. Bucks. You got to be good. You got to be well versed. You have to have a broad yeah. range of skill sets mm-hmm. to do that. Um but I think there's a definitely a market for that right now in the world. Uh especially with opening restaurants where like you just need to help to get the team going. Mm-hmm. Right? You come in, you train people. Look, what's going through your mind as I'm saying this? Oh, I, I had that. I had a friend. My yeah. my friend uh, Justin Schultz came in for the first few months that Nightshade was open to to be exactly that, like yeah. short term support. Another chef with a wealth of experience that was, you know, essentially contracted to be here for a period of time to get the restaurant off the ground, and yeah. then he, you know, went off and did his thing too. So um, where were you when in 2017? Like, where, you were? I mean, were you fiscally in a good spot? No, definitely not. I, I, I was just, you know, I, w- I think I was Lyft driving and cooking at people's houses. Like I, I, I got on like some private chef website and was picking up gigs doing that. Um, and I also was putting together a nightshade pop up and, and like starting to rent restaurant spaces and get, get events booked. So how do you put tickets. together a pop up? What's, what's that consist of? Oh, it just depends on where you are. And here, here in Lynn, I lived right across the street, actually. Um, and here they, you know, City Hall had no concept of what that was at the time. Um, well, they were like, yeah, it's around the time that this becomes a popular thing. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, as far as, you know, legally speaking, you need to have commercial kitchen space, insurance, business license, um, you know, everything that like a regular business would have minus the the address uh and that was the hardest part because you need an address for all of this and it can't yeah. be a residential address or a p.o box so. but the cool thing is you're eliminating some of your biggest operational expenses exactly. like rent right yes and you if you so what was your strategy i don't want to put words into your mouth like take us through so you you what is the first thing you have to do if you want to do a pop-up if you want to use this approach of pop-ups i mean if you want to be serious about it and have a business for it get insurance okay what, what kind know. of what's that look like what's pop-up insurance look like uh, catering insurance. Okay. Like get, get, you know, start an LLC. Don't have a sole proprietorship. It's way too risky. Uh, if you give someone food poisoning, so what, what makes it insurance will cover less it less risky to have an LLC. Just the limited liability part. So you know, being able to distance what does that yourself. Mean? So if you know, you have a, an event in a space and someone slips sole proprietorship is you're paying it out of pocket. Yeah. Limited liability is, the company the entity your insurance company is paying yeah. it yeah. yeah and and with all the moving parts and variables of a food business it's really not ideal to be a sole proprietorship uh when you are kind of directly responsible for the health and well-being of others yeah so get the the get the business insurance become an llc uh go th- you know i recommend going through um legal zoom is a company that I went through to become an LLC. How did you do it? Did you just do it all yourself or did you contract? I just did it. I just went on the secretary of state website and figured it out. But like, I, I think I had a friend kind of walk me through it that had done it before, but legal zoom is a great resource as well. Um, I went to city hall and like found a way to like introduce myself to everyone there. I needed to be able to, to rent. 
I needed to be able to get short-term liquor licenses for events, like one-day licenses. So, so introducing myself at the city clerk's office and trying to, you know, just put a face to the name of who I need to be dealing with when I need these things and how the most efficient way is to go about it. Um, I found an insurance agent who is still my insurance agent to this day for, for all the insurances in my life. Um, and I'd basically say, Hey, Moblin, I, I have this event at the Capitol diner on October 15th. Can you issue me a, a certificate, you know, a, a, an insurance certificate for it? And I'd get the workers comp thing. I'd send it to city hall. They would approve it. Then I'd get my one-day liquor license for it. I'd have my packet of information on my temperature logs. And so would you have to do this for every pop-up, jump through all these hoops for these limited, like getting these short-term licenses every time? Pretty much. And there are definitely several, like in Boston, they don't really, you know, at the time it wasn't really like a thing, so I didn't have to work that hard at it. But in the suburbs where, like, there's not that much happening, there you do need a paper trail. And yeah. I still have all that stuff. It was incredibly valuable. Like at the time I was like, this is so stupid. I wish I could just go sell some sandwiches at the yeah. brewery. But like it wasn't now that I think about it and and like now that I've had that experience, it definitely set me up for success organizationally. Yeah. What were the things you learned the hard way as far as best practices that you didn't do early in the process, but towards the end of the pop ups, you're like a fine tune machine? How to organize all my files, how to have everything that I needed on me for a surprise inspection, which would happen from time to time, how to write a menu without all the flashy words that alert a health department, like, like pickled oh, okay. or fermented or how to stay under preserved. the radar. Yeah. yeah. Just how to, you know, stay under the radar for sure, but also safely, you know, doing but all that. You had insurance, you're that. doing things right. Why would that? So you just don't want to invite them to come yeah basically. there was enough stress being yeah. in a place you never cooked in before and like tripping outlets and not knowing where pans are like it just I thought you were gonna like, say tripping for a second i was like what kind of operation oh no. are you running over here <laughs> uh so you said something that escaped my mind um okay with the insurance um in in oh the, the file organization yeah i basically mm-hmm. had like an accordion file in my car that oh, i just okay. had like you know because it you know, we never really did get surprised, but like in Salem, for example, Salem has a very strict health department. When I would do events in Salem, there was an inspector there every single time. So if I didn't have everything put together in a way that looked, you know, that was organized, that was efficient for them to review, then that was just a red flag for them to keep staying up my ass. Yeah. Basically. So you're so. creating a path of least resistance to get them out of your ass. Exactly. <laughs> like here's yeah. the file. Get away. Go. Like here's everything. Right. You yeah. yeah. And like I, I, I never did an event without insurance. Even if I flew under the radar and like forgot to do a temperature log, I definitely would not go without insurance. That was like, I did not with, you know, being on track to open a restaurant. I didn't want anything in, in on my record that would, yeah. that would indicate that I wasn't responsible. Yeah. And you're using the nightshade, uh, brand from the very beginning too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been the same LLC the whole time. So, was the goal always to open a restaurant? Yes. Uh, when I was, yeah, it was. When I was younger, I did not want to open a restaurant. I just wanted to operate other people's restaurants. And then after Cleo closed, I was like, "Fuck that! Yeah. I'm not do. I'm not working this hard for anyone else anymore." Like, I voluntarily work like 85 hours a week, and I yeah. voluntarily put my whole heart and soul into these menus. And it's time for it to be in my name. Yeah. Um, so I feel like a lot of people get in trouble because they think I want to open a restaurant and they get in crazy amounts of debt mm-hmm. to get that brick and mortar to feel validated that I'm a restaurant owner now. 
did was that was that same demon nipping at your heels? Like, did you want the brick and mortar? Were you hungry for the brick and mortar? But what? Well, what was it about you that didn't go for it right away? Is what I'm curious about. I couldn't go for it right away because I did not have good enough credit to get a loan, mm. and no one would back me. No one was going to invest in in me here at the time. Like Exchange Street, um, you know, five years ago was those two were condemned buildings those two nice businesses across the street um it was like just trash everywhere it was just completely run down and dark it was not an inspiring place so i had like zero interest no one would invest um in you know me trying to open a a tiny like vietnamese and french seafood restaurant in downtown lynn like yeah. no one was like, let me just throw three hundred thousand dollars at no, this I hear that. girl with tattoos cooking weird shit in the abandoned building. But, like, who, it's- <laughs> but who told you, or where did you get this? In, like, where was your inspiration to start with a pop up? Why was that the path for you? Why did you? When did this come into your mind as the solution? I just knowing that I wasn't going to land a space unless I like was still working for someone else. I wanted it all for myself. Did you have a plan? Not really. What was your strategy? Just to make as much money as I could and, and build a reputation. And I, you know, I had the Instagram account and I was just posting dishes all the time. Were you, and be, were you profitable with pop-ups? Were you making good money at any point? No. Yeah. I made enough to get by. Like mm. I, I, which is honestly like not that different than just working as a line cook at the time. Yeah. You know, it just, I, I made enough to get by. I probably had a few hundred dollars left over at the end of the month. Not much different than now, to so, be honest with you. So when you <laughs> first, <laughs> so when you first start, um, when you first start this pop up, how are you finding the, the commercial space to do it? Was it just your, your professional network? I lived here for a while yeah. at that point, And I was, you know, eating, around the neighborhood and it's all diners. This was a diner. Um, I ate here every day until I found out they were selling it and then I bought it and then I still ate here every day until it closed. (laughs) Um, then in the same deal with a a few other locations in Lynn and then also just kind of word of mouth. I, I had a handful of friends in this area. I did most of my pop-ups in Boston and like in areas that I was familiar with. Were they at restaurants? Yeah. At restaurants. Like off hours. Closed. Yeah off hours or when they were closed or like special events, like, I don't know, some guest chef kind of stuff. Um, my buddy Jay at, he owns Brassica in Jamaica plain. He actually like lost a cook, like, or the cook had to leave suddenly and they, they basically had a station open and he was like, why don't you come, uh, do like a month long stint here and you can cook all your dishes off of this one station and, and I just want the liquor sales. I'll cut you a check for your food sales. You bring all your own shit. Well, that was my next question and is how do you negotiate the terms? That was incredibly generous of him. And, yeah. Um, and, and that honestly, that was like kind of largely the format for anywhere. Um, the terms I negotiated was mostly that we would sell all the liquor through the establishment, but I would insure it for the day. Um, and then, so I was paying the insurance on it. I was bringing all my own food and utensils, even down to plateware. Like I tried to make this as easy as possible for, for anybody who was renting to me. Um, and basically, you know, be like, I'll pay you this flat rate for the rental. And then plus all the liquor sales, like 
we'll order things to your restaurant or, you know, we'll have your people do it or however you want to go about that part. But all the liquor sales will go through your centers and then you get to keep that. And I just want the food sales and I would run the food and liquor separately. So were you running your pop-up simultaneously while they're running their, or was it during their, sometimes it just depends on the, you know, sometimes it was like in a private dining room, but you weren't using their POS or anything like that. Were you just for their liquor sales? Just with liquor sales, so you, you know, just it depends on it depended on what they because they were, were taking, comfortable with. They were, they were making that profit, so it, had, mm-hmm. it made sense for that to go through their system. But how yeah. would you separate the like? Would I would you, sell two food checks? Ticket, tickets. Okay. I, so I pre-sell. would pre-sell the tickets on Got like it. Eventbrite and stuff. Why is that the best way to go? Because you get the money up front, mm. and it's you know non-refundable. Mm. Um, so if people buy the tickets and don't show, or if people make a reservation and don't show, you don't lose the money. Yeah. Um, so if you're doing a pop-up, you recommend doing it that way, pre-sell tickets, have an mm-hmm. event, prefixed. Exactly. Yeah. Or like an all-inclusive thing. Yeah. And then sell the liquor on site because it needs to be attached to an insurance. So you did address. this for two years, right? Yeah, almost three. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm a little curious about the private chefing side of things, too. I just um, did it at the same time. Yeah. And I'm I'm, sure, I mean, I'm assuming that was probably a little more lax with just kind of cooking under the radar for people. Kind of. Yeah. It just depends. Like some people really wanted like, you know, 14 or 16 courses in their home kitchen. And that was like, so was it more events or like, were you like someone's personal chef? Personal. Like I I would go, you know, I would just be, you know, cooking for a couple, you know, one Friday night and the next night cooking for like a family get together. And, you know, it's just always different. It never, I worked for a family for a period of time. and I really didn't like that. but how did you find these opportunities? Is it just because people knew who you were and they found out you were looking for work? I think it was a mix of that and being on this private chef website. I can't remember what it's called. Okay. But I, I was you on. Can think of it. Let me know. We'll include it in the show notes. Yeah, I'll think on. of it. Yeah, yeah. And my uh, friend Mike Betts, he's a he's a private chef. He's uh, been doing that forever. So, leads. so he linked me. Up. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Got it. Uh, okay. So, in terms of the pop ups, one thing I'm curious about is. You, you did this to kind of build your name, you said, right? Mm-hmm. That was part of the purpose is to, to make some money and to also get your name out there. How did you do that? Were you, how were you marketing yourself? How were you de- growing relationships at this point? I started a website. I had an email sign up form. Yes. This is exactly what much, I was hoping you would say. Yeah. I, I promoted on Instagram. I was like, you know, I would promote shamelessly. Just like in a third person, just (laughs) (laughs) like I've been running the Instagram this whole time. (laughs) And, um, and yeah, that, that was pretty much it. I would, I would just put out Instagram ads, Facebook ads. I quickly learned how to use those things in my favor. Like for certain events, I would use Facebook ad features to kind of like send that information solely to certain area codes. Yeah. You know, like if you knew you were going to be someplace like, hey, down the street today, this is happening, you know, exactly. Buy a ticket. Or if I was doing some like, you know, champagne dinner or something like those were ads I was pitching to like Marblehead and Swampscott. And if I was doing a crawfish boil, that was probably more what I was pitching to like Revere and Lynn. And and yeah, knowing the demographic and also using those tools to build um, a really diverse clientele. Like one of the things that I really love about nightshade that went my proudest is that the dining room is so mixed. Mm. It's not like all old white people, Mm. like, like a lot of restaurants that serve fancy shit. Like it's, it's, it's every, everybody in between and, and we get to reflect that and, 
in the menu and then the price ranges and everything. So yeah. it, like that we wouldn't have been able to come out swinging like that with a brick and mortar if we didn't spend, you know, the years pitching different events at different price points to build clientele in all these different areas. So when you're using Eventbrite and you're using all these different tools to engage your potential new customers, your, your tribe, are you collecting emails during this process? Mm-hmm. Do you remember how big your email list got by the, the time you opened your restaurant? I wasn't that big. I think it was around 5,000. I mean, I don't know. I, I have nothing, <laughs> nothing, nothing to... I mean, that's 5,000 direct leads in a, in a targeted specific market. Yeah. It's pretty good. And it's good. definitely ebbed and flowed. You so, know, like as people move away and unsubscribe or this is no longer relevant, like so it's interesting This to is exactly what you did. If anybody's listening to this and they echo the same sentiment that you echoed earlier that it can be discouraging. Like how are you supposed to go up against these people like Thomas Keller and these, these rich privileged people? Like I don't have anything to my name. I don't have to, I got a Uber between private chef gigs and and pop-ups. Listen, like that's what it takes and don't let not having the resources to open a restaurant today, stop you from starting the process and starting the process starts where you can. And exactly. That, and that's yeah. what you did. And ask yourself, if you're listening to this, where can I start? And most of you, I don't care who you are or what your background is, most of us can afford a website. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and that's where it starts. Have a, all, it doesn't even have to be a fancy website. All it has to be is a landing page right. to collect emails. To and send. if you can't, you could can still make it exactly. and then just put in a bum credit card number and it will be there for three months until you have the money. <laughs> yeah, so just start. And, and your new storefront today is your digital prep. Your, your digital presence. Start sharing your story. Start sharing your vision. The point of having a vision is to share it. That's why we write our vision down. Not so, I mean, to keep us on track too, but also to share with other people, to inspire people. And like, we can start this today. What is your vision? Share it. What are you, anything like, what do you want to do? Start where you can, even if it's on a brick and mortar, you can do a pop-up. You can, you might have a friend that will let you use their space. Kick that frontal lobe into hyperdrive and figure out solutions. Start solving problems. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm so, I don't mean to put words into your mouth, but I'm going oh, on there. No. But I just think you're very inspiring. Like, you do exactly what Chef Rachel did. Just start, build that list, start promoting yourself, and eventually, what happened? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll go. It'll take off. But, but what happened for you? Like, when did you go from that point of just having this f- list of five thousand, doing your pop ups, having a name as a personal chef? Like, what in that two to three year period where nobody would even like you know, extend you a hand or give you a loan or whatever, what changed in that three year period? When, what what was the breaking point for you? I just didn't stop. I don't know if we're unstoppable. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't, you know, I've, I think I just found a way to make everything around me work and, and it forced me to stay creative and keep pushing and never, ever stop. And, and I'm still going like, yeah. I, you know, I still operate as if, you know, not much has changed personally. I still operate as if I'm still proving this every day and I'm still, you know, everything I do is to the best of my ability every day. Even if it's not transporting soup broth in my car, it is just being, you know, on the line here, putting out the best product every day. And yeah, to be honest with you, it really doesn't I don't feel like I've like made it anywhere. I just now have more bills, but yeah. it's <laughs> at least I yeah. have to move all my shit around. But you have the freedom, the autonomy that you always wanted. Yes. Do it and it's your food, it's your name. 
you mm-hmm. know? And I think that we, I know this as a fact, it's a human need. It's a human need to be seen. Yeah. It's right there just above your security after food and after like your physical logical needs and your security. The, mo- the next most important thing is, do you see me? Do you value me? Mm-hmm. It's a human need. Putting yourself out there. It's a really vulnerable position. Like all this food, that I'm cooking every day. These are like ideas. This is artwork. This is heartfelt. This is very vulnerable. And, you know, you're, I'm just like putting this out there and hoping that people like it. And sometimes realizing that people might not really like it and how to balance that, you know, mentally and keep going. And that's, I think probably the most important one for creatives. So how do you do that? How do you compartmentalize what people feel, other people's emotions about you from what you're trying to do? I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. I think I'm just like a super bonkers Gemini. Like there's <laughs> like, there's just like, I feel like multiple people inside my head a lot of the time, not to sound crazy, but like, I feel like just, I don't know The me here with you now is, is a lot different than the, you know, me in the kitchen. A lot of the time I'm like a lot more quiet and, and reserved and I don't, I don't know. Um, certainly not speaking confidently about so many different things business wise, but uh, I don't know. I don't think that I don't, a lot of times I don't feel like it's even about answering it. It's just about like existing in it and just being one with it and just knowing how to roll with the tide. So in 2019 you get the brick and mortar. Mm -hmm. What take us through that? Was it, what, what what didn't you expect that happened? What, what, what are the curveballs that you got that you could give us a heads up to? Um, well, we had a lot of curveballs. We were only open five months before the shutdown. Yeah. Um, and I say that the restaurant that I thought I was opening was a lot different than the restaurant that I did open. What was the restaurant you thought you were going to open? I really wanted to open more of a neighborhood place I, did, I was not intending to open a tasting menu restaurant or anything in the price range that we're in so you're more expensive now than you thought you were going to be 100 oh, percent. yeah so what what was it about the reality that forced you in this direction what people came here for okay i tried to sell you know i tried to i'm going through this at the store as well like i tried to talk about sin city next door sin city next yeah i i wanted to offer something cheaper uh to have a wider reach to you know to just reach different people and to, to have like a range of products that would appeal to different people in different uh, tax brackets, basically. And so I had, you know, $13 noodle dishes and $18 noodle dishes, and I would just mostly sell the $28 noodle dishes, which is the weirdest thing I've ever said. You know, a lot of people were battling that. They're like, what's wrong with you? It's a $28 noodle and you should sell $10 noodles. And none of them, you know, like they're not here anymore, but like, <laughs> Largely people ended up, you know, I put foie gras on the menu and that was like on every single table. We were selling the most expensive bottles of wine. Like I, I quickly learned that that wasn't what people come to me for. They're not coming to me for a, an experience outside of like what I've been offering my whole career so far, working at tasting menu restaurants and, and fine dining restaurants, trying to appeal to that market was difficult um and so yeah last year october for our second birthday we were like we're gonna just start offering blind tasting menus because we're getting requests for tasting menus and and like 
you know, I'm not selling the $5 menu items. I'm only selling the $30 menu items. I want to make them smaller and like, I don't know, fuck around with this a little bit. Do you think this is a, maybe a, a, what do you think was happening in the world that the shift from people going away from conservative food spending to more, I guess, exploratory experience based food purchasing? I have no idea what goes on outside these four walls. <laughs> <laughs> I think the market's changing. Generally speaking, I think people are people's food knowledge. Say your average person's food knowledge today. Much wider. Oh my God. You, should, you said the word charcuterie in 2000. How many people would look at you with a weird like frog right. you know, right. pate. Like these are common words for most people today. Like mm-hmm. I think that the, the palate is definitely expanding. And I think also people know that that type of food is expensive, but mm-hmm. they also are more conscious purchasers today than they were maybe 10 or 15 years ago. I think so too. And I also think that tasting menus are a little more trendy now again. Yeah. And that's helpful. Um, but yeah, largely, you know, I will sell, more langoustine than shrimp toast any day yeah. like just so i want to make sure i understand when you opened the noodle bar mm-hmm. nightshade you thought that your your market was going to be more in the, the five to ten dollar range small portions more affordable price range but what you discovered is people had a more re- refined palate and they wanted the more expensive things Basically, yeah. yeah. Five to ten is a little low, but still, for the most part, that was it. I yeah. Think. So, um, so is there an underlying lesson here that – what would that be? I think staying – you know, I tried to, to change my tune, like I said, and offer – try to offer things that would appeal to a different clientele and, and um, you know, just have a different reach. But I think that – it didn't make sense for someone like me who had as much training as I had in these different areas of fine dining Yeah. to, you know, that's what, that's what I was known for. That's mm. what I'm known for now. That's what people are coming here for. Yeah. Try to, you know, I tried to, I opened a convenience store next door that we're just slowly morphing into a specialty shop. Cause like as much as I, you know, really wanted to sell like a, a volume of like EBT produce and, and you know, baby supplies and all the things that people were asking about at random in the shutdown i'm selling caviar like it (laughs) (laughs) which i'm proud of but i also i'm like damn can something just be easy bananas (laughs) (laughs) but i think there's something to be said too about not being married to your vision and not being married to what you think is going to work and Mm -hmm. being willing to pivot and give people what they want yeah i think that will just work out better in the end is to not yeah. be resistant and yes exactly not yeah. be super married to whatever the original intention is because it will always change i think you were also really smart to do noodles for your first restaurant do you thank you why would i say that because as a food person you probably know that at the end of the day it's largely like tap water and flour and water and flour baby. and here in massachusetts the landlords pay the water bill <laughs> so it's a great i think people get in a lot with somebody especially coming through a fine dining background i think people who come through that filter who come through that world hold themselves to those standards and i think that the industry and i think we're kind of coming full circle now um earlier i wrote down the industry is nearly impossible i mm-hmm. think we're doing it to ourselves because we compare ourselves to the James Beard award winners, the Michelin stars of the world. Of course. And we all in our mind, that's the, that's the goal, 
right? That's success. What what's going through your mind as I'm saying this? I think that I think that uh I'm certainly one of them. Like I don't What do you mean by that? I uh that is what I look towards. That it, that is like what what I have always thought of as the goal is is climbing this ladder to be in this like upper echelon of of people who produce food in a certain fashion and and are influential and and I've worked for so many people who are not on that you know hoping for that one day and at the same you, time like, you've worked for some people really who aren't hoping for those to, achievements you know they're not like comparing themselves to James Beard award winners and like pushing for that lifestyle necessarily and I'd, honestly like I'm not either like it would be nice to have a bigger name so the restaurant could just be busier like we're in the middle of downtown Lynn there's you know everyone feels like Lynn is like the edge of the universe even though it's like the same you know time frame to get from like back bay to Jamaica plain like it it is we have to treat this like a destination restaurant I have to if I don't live on Instagram we are not going to be busy like if if I forget to post on Instagram we will see it in the books like it it is very like every day uh running uphill catching the next set of reservations cooking for them doing it again um being in a place where there is no foot traffic as you can see we are the only people that bring foot traffic after two o'clock you know or or four o'clock whenever the businesses across the street close and and so we really have to generate as much as possible on our own to get people in the building like there's no byproduct yeah there's no nothing else so if you think about what everything that you just said now if you if you on top of that put in say you were a, a restaurant that specialized in charcuterie mm-hmm. right heavy labor heavy prime costs you know would that's you us be too yeah what's that oh that's that that's the, that's the sorry go ahead no no so like what do you think that that would work here Maybe we are, it is a very labor intensive place and it is very expensive to operate. Yeah. Um, uh, everything here is tedious. Got it. There's like 30 menu items and they all got it, got take it. forever. Um, but the margins are good. Is I, I think if you didn't go with noodles, mm-hmm. right. Do you think that you'd have the same level of success? Do you, do you think the concept helped you in this scenario? Yes and no. A lot of people are like, why do you call yourself a noodle bar if you only have five noodle dishes on the menu? And I'm like, well, have you ever been to another noodle bar? <laughs> like, they're they're all kind of yeah, like that. Yeah. You can still, <laughs> you know. And also, there are nice restaurants that are noodle bars. There are Michelin-starred noodle bars. Mm-hmm. There's Momofuku noodle bar. Like, there's, you know, the, this whole world out there of noodle bars that are all different, you know, and... and um I think that in the beginning, if I hadn't had, you know, I've never had more than five noodle dishes on because it's really hard to manage that many noodles with myself being the only cook. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. And like I have a daytime chef that produces the noodles, and but like, you know, getting them on plates, managing inventory, handling all of that is just, you know, we're, we're a really small operation. Um, so, yes, it was helpful. But it's not the I think that what was mostly helpful was just paying really close attention to what our clientele wants, being really intimate with them, just 
taking the cues of what people were coming here for and going with that flow. And that's definitely formed a lot of the personality of the place. Yeah. Back to this thought that the industry is nearly impossible. What do you think needs to change about the restaurant industry today? What What's necessary for the, the, the future of our industry? I think in my experience, the, 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 probably what I think about most in terms of change is, is outside of us. It's a, it's more about how people value food um, and like what they're willing to pay for it. And while that has, there's, you know, we have seen an increase in that and a change of pace and, and like what people value, um, you know, still the rigor that we go through to profit, you know, $20 is, is a lot different than what like a jewelry store would or something else would. And like how I, I think that there's so many moving parts. Restaurants are so expensive to operate when people, um, simplify what we do and they're like, well, I could just make this and it would cost me $5 at home. And it's, it's, I think just removing that sentiment would be one of the more helpful things. I think it's baked into our industry, this idea of hospitality. What is hospitality? If you define the word hospitality, it's warmth, it's generosity, it's giving, it's, it's sacrificing so everyone else can benefit, right? right. And I think that we do that, and it's, it's baked into the DNA of our industry. Uh, and I, I agree that I think you hit the nail on the head when you said it's value-based and it's outside of the industry. Um, mm-hmm. I think that needs to be a common echo that we all as restaurant owners have to put out there is like, listen, th- there, there needs to be change and it's not, the problem is not within the industry. It's, it's with the, cons- the, the, the perceived value of food. Right. right? And service and yeah. the value of hospitality. We started, we implemented a, a 20% admin fee on every check in lieu of a tip. Tip line's still there if people want to add to it, but they certainly don't have to. And it is, you know, we don't recommend that. Um, but i got death threats. I got horrendous emails. We, you know, went viral on Facebook. I was on seven news channels in 48 hours. Um, and that was nuts. Because because, you charged too much. Yeah. Well, people were like, it's your responsibility to pay your staff, not mine. And I'm like, you, I don't even know where to begin with this statement. The answer is yes, I agree, which is why I'm charging you when I'm charging you. (laughs) Yes. And also circle, (laughs) this is what it costs to eat here. If you don't like it, don't eat here. Period. Like, that's fine with me not to sound cocky, but like I would much rather not like go blue in the face trying to like defend the value of my product. But that's what we need to do is defend the value of our products collectively. It shouldn't just be one person doing it. Yeah. It was a pretty scary time. There wasn't really a lot going on there with other chefs doing anything about that, but it was just, but it's happening and it's because we're slowly realizing, I think that we need to do what we need to do to survive. Right. And that means we need to charge you what this is worth. It's a double edged sword. What's the other side? Um, well, I mean, not, not to the charge what it's worth. Part. Okay. Like that, that's, that's mandatory, but being vocal about it and getting political about it, you know, prior to the pandemic, never talk about money, never get political, never do anything polarizing that could alter who your client base is. Um, that's going to keep you out of public arenas as a chef. That's going to keep you out of, you know, opportunities to be on people's podcasts and, and whatever. I'm and, so afraid of you. And, like, it's my job. I don't even like work in the restaurants anymore. My job is to be political and vocal. You yeah. Know? Well now it's a lot different. People, people do want that from us. Mm. They, you know, people love like loud, angry, 
women too. Like they love like uh, drama and and trying to like toe the line of of that stuff productively and still be a serious chef is a weird one. Like yeah. You know, for so long, I was just known as like that crazy bitch with the leftover crack shirt on the news talking about a 20% <laughs> admin fee. I didn't have time to change. And it was a surprise. <laughs> was it 24% you call it an admin fee? Yeah, we call it an admin fee. It gives us, it, it is, uh, gives us, it's for our equitable labor model. So everyone front and back of house is paid. If it's a tip, then it can't. Go split. towards back a house. Exactly. Yeah. If it's a if it's a, if it's a service fee, I've heard it be called service fee often. I've never heard it be called an, an admin fee, but I like that. I worked hard on this with my legal team for a long time. <laughs> Doing payroll pre-pandemic made me sick. The amount of times I've sent gifts to tables that that you know were my work, my thoughts, my art, my everything, and then having to write a check to a server for an extra hundred bucks because they got that gift and that server was just the one that walked it over there. Mm-hmm. That pissed me off. Mm-hmm. Granted, there's a lot more to service. I certainly was not meaning to simplify that, but that was just a really yeah. good example of the inequities in restaurants and what cooks feel and why yeah. there are so few of them now. I mean, you could work eight to 10 years growing as a professional in the back of house and somebody could you know, walk onto the floor and within three months be a natural and be making three times as much as you. Well, yeah, and that, that makes me sick. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to work in another restaurant like that. I don't want to it's a broken feed model. into that. Yeah, It's a broken model, and I Completely. full-heartedly believe that. And I think the, the the way to change it is by putting your foot down. I mean, my hat's off to Danny Meyer for being one of the first to take it. I think it took somebody like Danny Meyer that has that type of public awareness that if he's doing it, it, it takes somebody being the first Right, he ultimately abandoned it. it. No, he abandoned yeah. it. But he did it like t- well, almost like what was it like almost ten years ago? I want to say close to seven, eight years ago. He was it was a while ago. I want to say it feels like it's been a while. I don't quite remember. Maybe it wasn't that yeah. long ago. I want, but but what he did is I think he created awareness to the industry that it's an option. Mm-hmm. They ultimately had to abandon it. But I think that's what happens when you're the first to take to try something, and when you're that big. Yeah, but they could they could afford to take a hit mm-hmm. and recover. And I think that I don't know if more people would be doing that today if he hadn't done it first, you know? Yeah. To be honest with you, I didn't even know. I like, I didn't even like look around. I was just like, you know what? I am so tired of working into the ground and, and like making the same amount of money, no matter what. And watching the cooks that I bring in here, work themselves to the bone and then writing checks to them for a fraction of what servers who worked four days a week make and and that was literally it for me i i certainly could have educated myself a little bit more on what was going on outside but at the same time like i mentioned earlier i i try really hard not to compare myself to wealthy white men because it's not realistic for me operating like all these things could be inspirational i love their books i read them i engage with that stuff but as far as like actually operating it's not the same game you know if if Danny Myers decided to do that today, he wouldn't get, you know, harassed by, you know, 30,000 people on Facebook yeah. like we did, you know, and, and that was like the first time any of those people had heard of anything like this. Um, and, and like, you know, I don't know. It was just bizarre. Um, but yeah, the admin fee, it's, it's created a much more equitable work model labor model it it's a nicer place to be it's a nicer place to work i've never uh i'm i've paid cooks who have just informed me multiple times that they've never made this much money before 
and it is an honor. And, and I, I pay them so much more money than I've ever made before. And it's too. still hard to find them. <laughs> oh, it's impossible. It's impossible. So what, what needs to change? Do you think people just don't want to work in this industry? Is it just, I think that's part of it. I think it is taxing. It is emotional after the pandemic. It is, you know, mortality was a, is a much bigger subject. Now we can still get COVID and die. It's just, we're just more used to it. So the are you know used to the concept yeah. um, i mean it was scary three years ago way more scary now because we didn't know anything about it we, we knew it was a th- huge threat you mm-hmm. know and it's still scary to this day um you, you we know, still take it very seriously yeah you know if one of us gets it that affects everybody else's income exactly and i think that that's the the hardest part about operating is that no matter what size restaurant you are but especially if you're a small restaurant losing one employee for a week or 10 days or whatever the period of time that they're going to be going through this or infinitely. Yeah. The team takes a hit. The restaurant takes a hit. Like yeah. we're, it's, you know, the smaller the place, the more valuable everyone is, the more hats they wear. Yeah. And that amount of pressure on, on someone, particularly a young person, um, trying to navigate a world where they could just die at any minute. And like, you know, there's protests everywhere and shit's on fire and climate change. Like it just, you know, it does feel I, a little like daunting. I think I'll be trapped of, in a kitchen yeah, for 12 hours. Yeah. Much. I mean, we live in a very unique world. Like, there's so much that's quote unquote unprecedented about the world we live in today. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, I think one of the things that you pointed out, and this is the last thing I want to discuss before we go to the speed round. Um, you said something that I think is, I think it's scary that this is true, that if you don't get on social media and post something, then you won't see the same numbers tonight than mm-hmm. you did yesterday. Do you think that's okay? No, but there's nothing we can do about it. I agree that right now we live in an ecosystem where that is the way that you are successful, but I do challenge the idea that there's nothing that we can do about it because at the end of the day, Facebook and Instagram are just two companies. Well, and they're one now. Well, they're one now, you know, exactly. But so point being, we are more aware than ever before. And we also are aware that these companies, their objective is to distract us. Mm -hmm. Their goal is to have eyeballs on their app for as long as possible. And it's hard. They're built to be distracting. They're built to be addictive. They're Mm -hmm. built to not serve us. Right. (laughs) You know, Uh, and I think we know this now. And I think that I also, I mean, this isn't my time to, I want to hear what's going through your mind as I'm bringing this back to the surface. I think if you can't beat them, you got to join them sometimes. And this is one of those times for me right now, it's not worth not doing it because that directly affects my income and the income I'm responsible for, for others around me. I think as much as I would like to not be on social media all the time, Cause it is a time suck and it does, it is, it is like just operating in like an alternate universe that I, you know, is, is challenging as a, as you know, a human person sometimes yeah. it just, um, it's not worth it to me right now to, to not utilize it. You know, similarly how I was talking before about how you have to change your thinking, you have to compartmentalize things and make it work. Like, yes, there's all these injustices with all of this and, restaurant systems are broken and social media sucks and you know, everything is hard. And then it's like also, well, like, well, we still have to get to tomorrow. Yeah. I agree (laughs) with with what you're saying. I, I for sure see that perspective. Like you really like, if you can't beat them, join them. And until you're like big enough 
you're a big enough name that your place can just be busy without having to work for every single cover that walks in the door mm-hmm. so vigorously that's the difference like yeah. you know every time we get a little bit of press every time where we get a mention in the boston globe we get a pop every time we, you know we won best restaurant in north shore and boston magazine we were busy for like two weeks um every time something substantial happens that's like bigger bigger press we see a direct correlation in business otherwise it's like if I'm not just like responding to every Instagram comment as they come in, my phone is on my cutting board. People are like, do you have that tonight? I'm like, yeah, we have that tonight. Like then, nice. <laughs> you know, and then I see the reservation pop in. Like that's the kind of thing I have to chase. Yeah. And, um, and that, that's just the unfortunate part of reality right now. It's well, gratifying, but also it's a lot of work. Yeah. And I think that it's weird. I think we're as an industry guilty of just doing what we have to do at our own detriment. Exactly. Yes. Um, and I, I would just I encourage people to push back. And these companies, the the Facebooks of the world, the Instagrams of the world, the Ubers of the world, the the anything that's technology that we depend on depend on on the world in the world depend on us. We yeah. forget that. Um, and if we collectively start doing things that, at the end of the day, everybody wants to make money. We're a key link in the chain. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? So we are influencers. We have more control than possible. We can influence the consumer. You know what I'm saying? I keep on saying, you know what I'm saying way too often. But anyway, I, get it. <laughs> like I, I, I just, I, there's a part of me that feels like I've, I think there's, I think we should be mindful of that because certainly, I don't know. I think, I don't think there is no hope, you know? Yeah. I think this is just not the exact moment to rock that boat for my business. I get it. I totally understand. I will gladly jump on the boat when it arrives and there's more people on it yeah but i'm not i'm not equipped to i hear i hear rowing it right now and i I don't blame you (laughs) i i literally cannot blame you is there anything we did not discuss today that you were hoping we'd discuss not that i not that i could think of awesome uh the mission statement is to inspire empower and transform the industry how have you transformed over the past say what 15 years you've been doing this yeah a little more just i think every day i transform a little bit more by using that mantra which Ken Oranger said to me once and has rung in my ears every day since everything I do is to the best of my ability. Yes. Every single thing, no matter what. I love it. Beautiful. Awesome stuff. One more break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back to bust out a true speed round. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-Day Pilot Program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. 
Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. Restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. I don't need to tell you that it's harder than ever right now to be a restaurateur. The cost of goods are going up. Labor expenses are going up. People don't want to work in the industry. Anybody who had experience has, has gone on to different verticals or different industries. And we are just stuck with a lot of people who are very green. And how, how do we increase sales if nobody knows how to sell? Well, you empower them with the right tools. And one tool out there that you need to know about is called S. RV, which stands for Study Restaurant Variety, created by Roger Bodwin from Restaurant Rockstars, a name I'm sure you recognize for his multiple appearances on the show, and his co-founder and co-creator, Zaylin Jacobson, who you'll be working with. This is a tool that will help your team memorize your menu, your uh, your culture, uh, everything, anything you need to train them, your entire training manual is now in an app and accessible anywhere. And really what it is, is an interactive learning tool. And it's a great way to invest in your team and to make them feel valued. There's a lot of data supporting that. This is how the next generation of professionals prefer to learn. So if you need a tool out there to empower your staff, to train your staff, uh, to, to give them the knowledge they need to be sales stars, then check out srvnow.com click the link that says request a demo and that will bring you to a page where you fill out your information the very last field make sure you let them know that restaurant unstoppable sent you their way they will pay us a commission of one thousand five hundred dollars if you use that link and you you sign up with them and i just have to say thank you in advance we're trying to take restaurant unstoppable to the next level and this is one way we can do that by just spreading the word about these tools and uh, I believe in what they're doing over there. So you're in good hands. Uh, thank you in advance. All right. Do it now. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Compassion. What is your biggest weakness? Compassion. <laughs> what is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? Why are you here? What are you looking for? Uh, I'm, I'm looking for for their itch, their drive. Mm. What is your biggest challenge today? Hiring. How are you overcoming it? I'm not. <laughs> Still trying. I am. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just cooking. <laughs> yeah. Um, share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. A way to be, a way to act, a core value. That same thing. Uh, everything I do is to, my, to the best of my ability. I love it. What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your staff or something that you do to go above and beyond what's expected from the consumer? Uh, this may not be exactly answering your question, but what comes to mind is we keep, we, we write all the menus on the fly cause they're all blind tastings and then we put it in their guest notes. So we know what they had last time they were uh, here and how, so the service staff is able to engage with them based on previous experiences, their likes, what they didn't like, you know, any information possible. Got it. What is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do well enough or often enough? Thank their staff. Mm. 
I like that one. What's one piece of technology you've recently adopted within your restaurant that's had a huge impact on communication, efficiency, profitability, anything along those lines? Uh, I, I'd say this might sound cheesy, but Resi, the reservation system. Well, I was curious because you said that you had the guest log. Is yes. that the, the tool you're using? Right. Yeah. Resi has features that other other platforms at least didn't have at the time that we signed on with Resi that allowed us to have a little bit more intimacy with our client base. Specifically, what are those features? Guest notes that are separate from the notes that the guests themselves put in. Like we have like our team facing notes and then there's guest notes. Um, We're able to keep track of birthdays when their anniversaries are personal information that gives us opportunity to deliver a better experience. Um, And that may very well exist in other platforms, but I just was unaware of it. Got it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If you, this is the last question. So it's a doozy. Get ready for it. Okay. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? Apply an admin fee and pay everybody fairly. One. (laughs) Do everything you can to the best of your ability. Two. Keep your sidewalk clean. Three. I've loved this conversation. Uh, What is one book that's a must read to become a better person or a restaurant operator? This is so hard. You can pick multiple if you can't narrow it down to one. Okay. Well, I think the last one that I read before I opened here that was the most inspiring was Setting the Table. Mm. Biggest lesson, biggest inspiration from that book? Consistency. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Um, Chef Rachel Miller, this has been a lot of fun. I'm so thankful that Chef Brendan connected us. Thank you, Chef. And um, we have to do the same thing for you. Who do you respect? and admire in this industry and believe it would make a great guest mentor like you made for us today. My good buddy, chef Jeremy Keen at Brassica. Chef Jeremy Keaton. Keen. Keen. Look out. I'm coming after you. I would love to get you on the show. And how can we connect with you? If we really enjoyed today's conversation, we're inspired by you and maybe we want to come work for you. What's the best way to get in touch? Uh, my email address, Rachel at nightshade beautiful uh and this is restaurant unstoppable slash uh episode where the heck are we 931 Damn. head over to 900 <laughs> restaurant unstoppable.com slash 931 we'll have a summary of today's discussion as well as any tools or services that, or books that are recommended in today's chat uh rachel there is no questioning my friend you are unstoppable we'll cut it there why thank you <laughs> cheers <laughs> There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Rachel Miller, for coming on and just being a shining example of what it looks like to start where you can. And I think so many times people get in trouble in this industry because they overextend themselves. They ask for too much in the sense of uh, taking out loans and just start where you can. And for Rachel, that was personal chefing, doing pop-ups and developing a brand and buying a website and just collecting emails. And then that's what we can all do today. And if you have dreams and aspirations of owning a restaurant, but you feel like you're so far away from being able to do that, I just encourage you to start where you can Uh, just start today. And 
just such an inspiring story. Thank you so much, Rachel Miller. If you guys are enjoying this podcast and you want more episodes just like this one, please support this podcast by sharing it with everybody and anyone you know. If you haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe. Come hang out in Restaurant Unstoppable Network. That's where we're connecting our guests with each other and with the next generation of leaders. That's you. Uh, and around this idea of just kind of sharing knowledge and paying it forward and going deeper uh, in the lessons we're learning through these organic conversations. Uh, Also, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. So this is a long podcast. I get it. Two hours long. Uh, That's not for everybody. I love long format podcasts personally, but if you're somebody who wants a highlighted version of this podcast, then subscribe to youtube.com slash restaurant unstoppable. And we'll have like a 20 minute version highlight reel of this podcast over there for you. And even if you don't give a shit about that, Still, still subscribe to our YouTube channel because we need your help. Uh, we really need your help, and the, the more subscribers we have, the better we'll be able to uh, leverage that asset to continue to do even more amazing things here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Uh, as you're listening to this, we are headed to Chicago. Uh, that's mid-November, and then next month we'll be in Atlanta. The first week of November will be in Atlanta. I'd love to connect with you. Don't be afraid to reach out to me and make a suggestion. Shoot me an email, eric at restaurantstoppable.com if you know somebody we need to talk to. And uh, that's it for today. Thank you guys so much. Until next time, peace out.